You are now listening to the November 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time. Well, here we are walking our talk with Polly. <laughs> I just asked her if she would do the introduction. She won't do it. No. So today we're talking about discipling, being a disciple maker. Last time we ended, we talked about the environment that there we try and create, the environment of love and grace and accountability. And we haven't talked about this. We might take a whole session or two on how to understand your identity in Christ, because that made a real difference. You can be a Christian, but not really accept God's acceptance of you, and that gets in the way. You even wanting to be a disciple maker. I think one of the things that happens many times in Christians' lives is they learn to serve, they learn to give, they learn to do Christian living by doing the things that they're taught in church, but they don't really internalize who they are in Christ and what that really means. So yeah, stay tuned we, for another generation. We end up getting discipled and then discipling others in performance and doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus came to teach us. We end up being like the Pharisees trying to do everything just right and look so good on the outside when the the work of Jesus is done from the inside out. But it's pretty painful. I mean, picking up your cross and following me, and I always say, you don't pin up on the refrigerator. I want to enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings. That's in <laughs> Philippians. And people don't want, I mean, that's not the American way to go through pain. And right. yet what's funny, in sports we do it. In other words, and in business sometimes, we'll do anything to get success. Even have disregard for all our own body or our marriage or relationships. I mean, those who are very good at what they do spend a lot of time focused on what they do and so you see many professionals, many actors, many football players, whatever, who are so consumed with their 8 to 10 to 15 hours of workout. Well, right. And then they come unglued because they're trying to get a rest in their mind and, and in their soul. So they drink it away or do drugs yeah. or whatever and yeah. blow their lives apart. We even we just watched uh, the U.S. Open tennis match mm -hmm. and Rafa Nadal the Spanish tennis player who won the men's championship talked about suffering and how much he has to suffer <laughs> when he is out on the court with these long rallies back and forth and back and forth. Well, and, and how, long matches that are five-set oh, matches. Than, yeah, and it was more than five hours long that he and his opponent 
were out on the tennis court, and he said that he really respected the other player for the amount he had to suffer as well. We respect people who are willing to make those kinds of sacrifices. So it's like I was told early in my Christian life that, you know, watching a football game, there are 60,000 people that are supposed to be getting exercise, and there are only 22 of them that are really (laughs) getting the exercise. Right. So uh, here are some of the things that I think are important with disciple-making. Being intentional, Jesus chose 12 that they would be with him. So in Luke 6, 12, and 13, it says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, which, again, how much are you praying about the people that God wants you to impact? And spent the whole night in prayer to God. I won't even ask the question, How many of you have done that? Mm. And when the day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them who he also named apostles. So when I think back to my own experience, I was chosen by Joe Webb to be a disciple. And he asked me, he gave me the parable of the sower and the seeds and what kind of soil do you want to be, Alan? And of course, I said, I want to be good soil. I didn't have any idea what that meant. (laughs) But I have been through gymnastics, and I have hurt my body and hurt myself in order to gain the goal of doing it well, and sometimes even getting recognition for it in terms of a medal or something. But we need to be intentional about picking somebody who looks faithful, available, and committed, and teachable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So sometimes you pick somebody and it doesn't work out, and you know what? That's okay. You go to the next one, and you sometimes need to take a few weeks, sometimes even months, where you're pouring into somebody what you know and what it means to be a follower of Christ, whether it's reading the Word or helping them have a time with the Lord every day, which we call a quiet time where we connect with the Lord or dealing with spiritual warfare and talking about Ephesians 6 and what it means to put on the helmet of salvation and shod your feet with the gospel of peace and the breastplate of righteousness and holding up your shield of faith, which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. But sometimes in a few weeks, you realize they're not showing up. And even this year, I had somebody who I thought wanted to learn and be a disciple, and I changed my schedule. I did some things to reorient my life to give to him. And, you know, sometimes it's personal and sometimes has nothing to do. It's just he's an executive that doesn't have the time to do it right now. It's a time of life. But I want to be helping people that want help. I don't want... Right. I don't want to keep pouring my life into somebody who doesn't show up, who keeps giving excuses why they didn't read the material, who gives excuses as to why they can't meet during the hour that I'm driving a half hour to meet them, and then they're not there. Right. We were talking about this last night with, with another friend of ours who was a young man, was running. uh, He was a a manager, very popular restaurant chain. He had a lot of responsibility. He was the youngest guy who was hired by this chain. Right. And so his supervisor came in and had asked him to 
go out into the, I don't know, paint something. paint something, and and he would do it. And two days later, the supervisor came back, and accountability and responsibility show up in small areas of, of our lives. We think sometimes, oh, I, I could do this really big thing, but I'm not responsible to do the little thing. So how can I be trusted with something bigger if I'm not responsible to do the smaller thing? But isn't that the job of the disciple maker to say, you know, you want to grow. You say you want to grow. You say you want to become a mature believer. But I asked you to do a small thing, and you haven't done that small thing. How can you expect me to ask you or even expect God to ask you to do something bigger? Well, and he says that to whom much is given, much is required. And if you're faithful with little, he will make you faithful over much. Mm -hmm. So what I ask people is, are you giving thanks for where you are right now, (laughs) even though it's not working out and you have this great vision of what you're going to do? and you don't think got the right idea. Well, he happens to be infinite and you're finite. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I always go back to these verses that are comforting to me to dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness and fruitfulness. If you're faithful, you will be fruitful. Mm -hmm. And that's God's promise to you. That's not my promise to you. But he says in John 15, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, Ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. And John 15 says, Abide in me as a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. You cannot bear fruit if you don't abide. And he says, Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, he says it so clearly, but we are very dull of hearing. And so were his disciples who even worked with him. So Mm -hmm. if they were dull, I guess we can be dull too. So (laughs) the first thing is intentionality. A disciple maker is intentional about who he chooses. And Jesus had 12 disciples and one messed up. So if the God of the universe has one mess up, then maybe you might have one too. So be encouraged. Faithful, 2 Timothy 2.2 we've already talked about. Choose faithful men and women who will train others also in training them in keeping time with the Lord, having a disciple of their own. One of the best ways to learn, of course, is to teach. So whether that's one-on-one or small group, have your disciple, especially if you're in a group, pass it on to somebody else. In our, We have a home group that meets every Thursday, and if I'm out of town or if, if I just want a certain person to grow deeper, Usually I just say, hey, would you mind taking the lesson? And yeah, because it's you have to prepare. And I think a lot of times people think that you just walk into a appointment and you've done nothing to prepare. Most of the time, the things I do, I pray for the appointment that I'm going to see. I think about, Lord, what what are the things this person needs? And so are there articles or is there a page in a book that I've read or I could give people 10 books that they need to read, but that just piles them under. So I just say, you know, what's the most important thing this time for this hour to give to them? Well, and don't you think, Alan, that it's more than just spiritual, quote unquote, spiritual things like reading their Bibles and praying? 
Are there other disciplines, other areas of their lives that you're wanting to hold them accountable for, other activities? Yes. So playing sports or games or, like I say, going to their work or having them come to your home, they will see certain things that aren't in your house that may be in their house, questionable literature, uh, questionable things on the wall, uh, whatever. So by doing projects and serving other people, that's the other thing I think is important, is being faithful to give more than receive. And if I show care to them, many times, the first two or three times I get together with somebody who says they really want to grow in the Lord, and I say I'm going to call you if I don't hear from you this week, and I call them and I ask them, how you doing? And there's almost this silence at the other end. It's like, <laughs> he really called me. He really cares. So, and I remember one time in a counseling setting, I got upset in, with a very controlling woman I was dealing with. And I um, said to her the next session, I need to apologize. Last time I got upset and that was wrong and I need your forgiveness. And again, there was this pause. <laughs> and... She started crying, and she said, you are the first authority figure who has ever asked forgiveness of me, and it means a lot to me. Wow. So, I mean, many times, even if you make mistakes as a disciple maker, that can be helping somebody realize that you're faithful and you keep going even when there's adversity. Mm-hmm. So, we talked about intentional, being faithful, and then sacrificial. Jesus gave his life, so we should give our life to others. Um, We give up time. We give up sometimes our talent, sometimes our money. Sometimes I've given um, a few years ago. We had a couple in our group that they came and they were new to the church and they're living together, but they ran into financial problems and But they had been faithful to come, and I thought, you know, maybe if we give something to them, then it can lift them up out of where they are, which was very self-centered type situation. And it took months, and actually they moved out of the state, then they moved back in, but they paid it off and actually paid extra, the loan that was given them. And in that case, it worked out. But I can give you seven other times that it didn't work mm-hmm. out, that I, well, I, I sowed some seed and it never came back. <laughs> but isn't a but sacrifice something that you give to the Lord and you leave it on the altar and you walk away from it because you've released it completely to the Lord. And when you give sacrificially, it's not just that it's painful, you're giving something that you could have used for yourself. But when you give it, you've taken your hands off of it. You've released it to the Lord to do with it whatever he is going to do in that person's life. Well, and the way you know whether you've really given it in love, which is without strings attached, is whether you're bitter after it doesn't work out. (laughs) Right. So if you get upset at your disciples, if you get upset when you're counseling somebody, it shows that you're probably getting in the way. And so that's one of the ways that I know I'm not doing Christ's love and it's not sacrificial because Christ gave his life for people that didn't deserve it. 
So he demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So he died for sinners, and we, we still are sinners, but God has made us saints in him. And if we really are doing it the way Jesus did it, sacrifice will be a gift, not something that we regret. We regret, <laughs> or, you know, it will be painful. There's no doubt about that. So as we wrap up this session, so we've talked about in being intentional as a disciple, discipler, being faithful and sacrificial. Uh, now I just, we talked a little bit about it, but having vision for your disciple. Uh, Stephen Covey wrote a book called The End in Mind. In other words, you want to start by thinking, what will it look like at the end of this journey? And as I gave the illustration of Peter, Jesus said, you know, he saw him as a rock now, not just a pebble. Uh, Barnabas and Paul. Uh, Barnabas was willing to sacrifice his reputation and life and take Paul to Jerusalem, who, you know, at that time, Paul was killing Christians. And so the guys at Jerusalem were not real excited that Barnabas was believing in this guy that could kill them all. And, but Barnabas stood by him. And then Paul said that John Mark, in the book of Acts, he says he was not useful for the ministry, but Barnabas took him because he saw something in John Mark that was going to be good in the future, and he took him. And then later, Paul, in his ministry, says, bring John Mark. He's fruitful for ministry. And so you never know what stage of life a person is at. So don't totally give up on them. You may have to stop fellowship for a while. You may have to do something radical for a while. But, you know, we have so many stories of people in their 60s repenting. Uh, you know, there was this national televised preacher recently that just recanted bad theology and said, I recant this. This is wrong. I've been teaching this for 30, 40 years, and now I recant it. I don't know what you do. I mean, God's going to have to take care of the people that he messed up. But all I'm saying is all of us have room to grow and change. And having a vision for where somebody can be, not looking at where they are, really empowers disciples. Yeah, that is so true, Alan. I, I have a young woman in my life right now who is finishing up college she has college loans. She has a lot of debt. She's also doing her student teaching while she's finishing her schooling. And in order to pay off student loans, she's working. She has very, very little time in her life to take care of some other really important things. Like I ask her, have you been exercising? Have you been, how is your diet? How are you doing in this area and in that area? And I know that those things are not going very well for her right now. But I also know that very, very soon, this stage of her life is going to come to an end and she'll be able to move forward. And that's what I am looking forward to is where she's going to be in another six months from now. So we've gotten through four characteristics and we, <laughs> we're going to go to 11 and we're going to start going a little bit faster. We hope you're getting a lot out of our time together talking about what it means to be a discipler and we hope you're walking your talk and we look forward to seeing you next time. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. 
where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is the plan of God in the suffering we experience. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 through 13. Let's read it together out loud. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I mentioned these words are well-known, often quoted. People have them in frames around their houses, on their desks, in places where they can be reminded of these words, particularly verse 11, and this is good. The problem, though, is that many of us don't know when God said this, who he was speaking to, and what it meant at that time. And if we don't know what it meant when God said these words, then we can easily make them mean things today that they were never intended by God to mean. All kinds of people can find themselves suffering when you find out you have cancer, when your spouse decides to leave, when you're a child or a teenager and one of your parents is suddenly absent from your life. And you wonder, I thought God's plans for me were good. Or even in the middle of tough times, people will quote this verse and say, I have faith that my suffering is about to end because God promised it. So is that what this passage means? And this is why it's always important that we read and understand the Bible in context. Why it's particularly helpful to read the Bible like we're reading it together right now, because we understand when God says this in the story of Scripture. So just to catch everybody up to speed, in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, as a result of sin and division among God's people, they were split into two kingdoms. You had a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And both of these kingdoms were sinking into deep idolatry and immorality, worshiping all kinds of different gods, indulging in all kinds of different sin. So God sends prophets to both Israel and Judah saying the judgment of God is coming upon your sin. Turn back to him. Over a hundred times in this book, God through Jeremiah causes people to repent and return to God, but they don't listen. Kind of like us sometimes. God's word calls us to live a certain way. Over and over again, we still choose our own way. We don't listen. So what happens, and we read about this over the last week, is Assyria attacks Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. And well, listen to what 2 Kings 17.6 says. This is from our Bible reading this last week. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala on the Habor, the river of Gozan, in the cities of the Medes. So the people who lived in Israel, the northern kingdom, were taken away as exiles from their homes, as their capital and their kingdom was destroyed. That then sets the stage for the story to shift to Jeremiah, who lived in Judah, the southern kingdom. For 40 years, Jeremiah declares God's word, 
God's warnings to the people of Judah, saying the same thing that happened to Israel is going to happen to you. But this time it wouldn't be Assyria, it was going to be Babylon. So Jeremiah warns them, the Babylonians are coming. And just as Israel ignored God's warnings to the prophets, so did Judah. And in 587 BC, this is what we left off with in our reading in 2 Kings this week, Babylon overtakes Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and takes God's people from there into exile, this time in Babylon. And that is the setting behind Jeremiah 29. God's people are now scattered in Babylon, experiencing all kinds of suffering. Just imagine you and your family being taken from your home tomorrow by a foreign government into a foreign country where you have nothing and you know no one. And don't miss this. Here's what's happening at Babylon at this point. There were false prophets who were trying to comfort God's people by saying, don't worry, this suffering is not going to last long. Babylon's going to fall soon. God is going to bring us right back home. And Jeremiah writes this letter in Jeremiah 29 to the exiles in Babylon. And God says through Jeremiah, don't believe those prophets. Look at Jeremiah 29 verses 8 and 9. Right before what we read, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. In fact, you back up to verse 4 and listen to what God says there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exile whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. In other words, get comfortable. You're going to be in exile for a while. And this was not necessarily encouraging news. Imagine suffering like this. And instead of God saying, I'm going to end this soon, God says, you're going to be in this a while. In fact, you jump down to verse 10, see how long God tells them they'll be there. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So imagine that news. 70 years from now, God says, I will bring you back home. Is that encouraging to you? For most people, they would be dead by then. Just put yourself in the shoes of these exiles for a moment. What thoughts and emotions go through your mind and your heart when you hear that your suffering is going to last for 70 years? Basically, the rest of your life. And that is the context, the setup for Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Now see why context is so important. We think these verses are a promise that we won't go through suffering, when in reality, these verses are a promise given to people who are walking through suffering. Or we think these verses are a promise that suffering won't last long, that it'll end soon, when in reality, these verses are saying that suffering isn't ending anytime soon. So, is Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 good news or not? And should we have these verses plastered on our walls and put on our desks? Absolutely, we should. Let me show you why. 
Think about three promises to God's people then. So we fully understand the context here. So one, God is promising his people, and hopefully you received some notes that you can follow along as we dive in here. So God is promising his people, which as a side note is another important point. These promises aren't just given to individuals. They were given to God's people together. The you in these verses is plural. This wasn't just about individuals. It's about God's people together. God was saying to them, one, I will bring you through your suffering. God's people are captives in Babylon and God promised them. There is a time limit on the suffering and I'm gonna bring you through it. And bring is the right word here because God promises that he is gonna do this for them. You jump down to verse 14 and notice how God is the one doing the action here. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. In other words, God's promise wasn't, it's in your hands now, hopefully you can make it out. God actually says the opposite. God says, you're still in my hands and I am going to bring you out. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you. I will bring you back. God says, I will take responsibility for bringing you through this. That leads to the second promise where God says, I will hear your prayers to me. This is verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Now the then at the beginning of that verse is somewhat misleading because the picture is not that at the end of the exile, 70 years from now, they would call upon God. The picture is they would call upon God now. Pray to God now. God would hear them now. And this is beautiful. When you read it in the context of the rest of Jeremiah, because over and over again, Jeremiah talks about how God's people had totally turned from God. They had completely forgotten God. Jeremiah 2.32, which we read this week, God said, my people have forgotten me days without number. But here in Jeremiah 29.12, God says to his people, I have not forgotten you. I love you. My plans for you involve intimacy with you, which is an Amazing thing for the holy God of the universe to say to sinners who warrant his wrath. God says, I will hear your prayers to me. Third, God says, I will reward your pursuit of me. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Here we go, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Let's say it together. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight declares the Lord let me translate it does not matter how smart you are it does not matter how powerful you are it does not matter how much money you have the only thing that matters right now in your seat and forever, only thing that matters is if you know God. 
right where you're sitting right now, I ask you, do you understand and know? I personally know God. This is the one thing that matters most in your life. And God tells his people in Jeremiah 29, 13, this can be a reality for them. They can know God. They can find God. The language is like discovering hidden treasure, the most valuable treasure in all the world, God himself. God tells his people through Jeremiah, I will reward your pursuit of me. Now that we understand what God was saying to them then, we can ask the question, what is God saying to us now? You and me, as his people, reading his word this week. Three implications for God's people today that flow from Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. One, in the middle of suffering, we can know God has good plans for us. Middle of suffering, in the middle of situations where we wonder where God is or what God is doing, God says, I have good plans for you, plans for your welfare. Some translations, it says plans to prosper you. But the word that's translated prosper in those translations is the same word that's used for welfare back up in verse seven. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which means all-encompassing peace. This is God saying, amidst your turmoil, I have plans for your peace. Amidst your heartache and hurt and pain, I know that I am plotting for your good. Now, the key for us here is the same thing that was the key for God's people in Jeremiah's day. Don't believe in false hope. Don't believe people who tell you that God will keep you from all suffering or that God will bring you out of suffering really quickly. That's false hope. It abounded in Jeremiah's day and it is abounding today. In the mouths of prophets then and in the mouths of preachers today all across our country. Please hear me loud and clear. Many of the fastest growing churches in our country today are built on this false hope. Power of positive thinking even. Have faith in Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. God wills to prosper you financially, physically, otherwise. And if you're suffering right now, you need to believe that prosperity is coming soon because that's what Jeremiah 29, 11 teaches, right? When in reality, Jeremiah 29, 11 teaches the exact opposite. God's people were in exile according to God's will. And according to God's word, their suffering in exile was not coming to an end anytime soon. Now you might think, I like the other message better, which is exactly what the people in Jeremiah's day were thinking. It's why they were believing these false prophets. And God is saying to us right now the exact same thing he was saying to them then. Don't believe it. Don't put your hope in crowd-pleasing words. Why? Because they're not from God. Jeremiah, the prophet who is speaking the word of God, says here is true hope. Follow this. Your hope is not that God wills to keep you from all suffering. That's not at all what Jeremiah 29.11 teaches. Jeremiah 29.11 teaches that God wills to bring you through all suffering. We've seen this, like context of Jeremiah 29 makes crystal clear that suffering is a reality for God's people in this fallen world and God's people will not escape it. But God says to his people in the middle of suffering, I promise to enable you to endure it. And God does not promise in his word 
that suffering will end in a short time. That is a false hope that has led all kinds of people astray, preachers or Christians, saying, if you just believe, have faith, you will be healed soon. If you just have faith, believe, you will have financial health soon. If you just believe, your marriage will be reconciled soon. Name it, claim it, believe it, receive it. And then when it doesn't happen, when the healing doesn't come, when the finances aren't there, when the divorce becomes final, people are left wondering, did I not have enough faith? Or worse, is God actually there? Or if he is there, can he actually be trusted? When God never in his word promised that your suffering would end in a short time. You might ask, well, did God promise anything along these lines? And the answer, though not as popular, is clear here in Jeremiah 29, 11. True hope, God promises your suffering will end in the long term. Exile will not be the end for you, God tells his people. Your suffering will not have the last word. I have good plans for you, God says, and my good plan is guaranteed to prevail in the end. Do you realize what this means? What it meant for God's people in Jeremiah 29 and what it means for us as God's people today? God's plan calls for patient trust. 70 years is a long time to wait. Most of us would like God to work out our problems by the end of the week, not the end of the century, which is why these false prophets were so appealing then and it's why prosperity teaching is so popular today, but it's not true. It's a lie. What's true is that God is calling his people through his word, through this word, to patient trust. Is it possible that suffering could end soon in this or that situation? That healing, reconciliation, whatever might happen? Absolutely. By the grace and power of God, it is. And we can and should pray for that. But is it guaranteed? Absolutely, it is not. You can't bank your life on that. God hasn't said that, no matter how good it sounds. And I'm not going to say it as your pastor, no matter how many crowds it brings or doesn't bring. What God says is that when suffering comes, sometimes suffering stays for a while. When a child has a special need that isn't going away anytime soon, no matter how much you name and claim, when you go to that next doctor's appointment and the cancer is worse, not better, when that relational hurt is not healing, when that grief over loss is not going away, when you see no light at the end of that dark tunnel, God says in the middle of a real world where these are realities, God says, trust in me. Even when you can't see it, I have good plans for you. Light is coming. In this fallen, hurting world, weeping, may tarry for the night, but God guarantees joy is coming in the morning. And God not only guarantees that suffering will eventually come to an end, God promises to get you to that end. God's plan calls for patient trust and God's plan comes with persevering grace. Remember the language in Jeremiah 29 here. I will restore you. I will gather you. I will bring you back from this place. God doesn't say you're on your own in your suffering. Hopefully you can make it. 
through this. No, God says, you're in my hands. And I take responsibility for bringing you through your suffering, which means I'm going to give you all the grace, all the strength, all the wisdom, all the help you need. What they were experiencing in Jeremiah wasn't Job-like suffering. Like when Job suffered in the Bible, lost his possessions, his children, his health, his wife is telling him to curse God. And the Bible goes out of the way to make sure we know Job did nothing specific to deserve this. The story in Jeremiah's day is the opposite. The men and women in Jeremiah's day had sinned against God, all kinds of idolatry and immorality. That's why they were suffering. But even still, even though they had been completely unfaithful to God, God was still faithful to them. So when we think about our lives, there are times when we suffer as a result of our sin. When we sin, it leads to hurt. It leads to pain. It leads to consequences. It leads to challenges in our lives, in others' lives. Yet even in the middle of that, God says to those who trust in him, to his people, despite your sin, I still have good plans for you. And your sin will not have the last word. I will bring you through this by my grace. Isn't that good news? Second, we're going to pick up the pace here. In the middle of suffering, we can know God hears all our cries. You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you, God says in Jeremiah 29, 12, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And if that was true in Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13, it's all the more true today. Do you know why? Because context again, here in the Old Covenant, Old Testament here, and we've talked about this before, there was indirect access to God for particular people. Meaning, if you'll remember, the temple had been constructed in Jerusalem as a picture of the glory of God dwelling among his people. The center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, symbolizing the presence of God, but only particular people, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies, and even he only at certain times to offer sacrifices for the people's sin. Then he had to get out. Meanwhile, the people would stand back. They could not go in the presence of God, but that was going to change. Turn with me real quick, two chapters over to the right, to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. This is in our Bible reading tomorrow. It's one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. Listen to what God promises through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is a promise of what Jesus would do when he would come as our great high priest and he would offer his life as a sacrifice for all of our sin. You have access to God. It's the great news of the New Testament, of the new covenant. Direct access to God is available for all people through Jesus. I urge you today, if you have not turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, do that today. And then for all who have, know this, know this. Now put it together. When you walk through suffering in the middle of the challenges you face, I have good news for you. You, in the middle of those challenges, have direct access to the God of the universe. God himself is saying to you right now through his word, 
I personally, this is God speaking, I personally hear every single one of your cries. I see all of your tears and I feel all of your struggles. God is saying this to you. And God says, I promised to help you in every single way you need. In suffering, God is drawing us closer and closer to himself. Which means, third and final truth, in the middle of suffering, we can experience supernatural joy. I'm going to put the beginning of Romans 5 on the screen up here. We don't have time to turn to it, but I want us to connect these dots between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, particularly when it comes to our suffering. Watch this, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is the gospel, what we just talked about, how through Jesus we have access to God. So what's the result of that? Keep going in Romans 5. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. This is a weird way to talk. We rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. The whole picture in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 hinges on one person. All of these promises, not only in Jeremiah 29, but all throughout the Old Testament, they hinge on one person. They all point to one person. In all of our Bible reading over these last few weeks, we've seen all kinds of pictures. Do you know who they all point to? Jesus. Oh, this is like 10 more sermons right here in your notes, but I'm just gonna run through them. Don't miss the picture. Jesus is the resurrected prophet from Jonah. Just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish before proclaiming good news to Nineveh in a much different and greater way, Jesus spent three days in a grave before bringing the greatest news of all to the world. Death itself has been defeated. Jesus is the faithful husband from Hosea who doesn't give up on his people even when they commit adultery against him. Jesus is the burden bearer from Amos who carries the consequences of our sin for us. Jesus is the restorer of the lost from Joel. He redeems the years that the locusts have eaten from your life. Jesus is the prince of peace and sacrifice for sinners in Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus is the everlasting ruler from Micah, promised to come from Bethlehem to be the shepherds our souls need. And Jesus is the covenant keeper from Jeremiah. Jesus is the one who makes the hope of the new covenant a reality for you and me, which means, so please don't miss this. This may be most important of all. We cannot claim Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 as promises for our lives in this gathering today if we are not trusting in Jesus. Like these are not just general promises to God for anyone. Think about it. For people right now all around the world and even in this gathering who are rejecting God, who have not trusted in Jesus to save them from their sins, their, your future at this moment is not filled with hope. They, you, this is you, are not guaranteed that sin and suffering will end. For if they die, if you die in your sin, separated from God, not having trusted in Jesus to bring you to God, then your sin and everlasting suffering will have the last word. Hope in suffering 
hinges on one person, and his name is Jesus. You cannot cling to Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, if you will not cling to Jesus. But for all who cling to Jesus, these promises are yours. In Jesus, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that even in the middle of suffering, God has good plans for you. In Jesus, you can know that even in the middle of suffering, you have access to God and all of his wisdom, all of his strength, his grace, his love, his everything is at your disposal. And in Jesus, you can know that even in the middle of suffering, you have surprising joy because your joy supersedes the ever-changing circumstances of this world. Your joy is grounded in the never-changing promises of God that are yours in Jesus. Second Corinthians, all of God's promises to us are yes in Christ. Don't miss the point. God keeps all of his promises in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 to all who are in Jesus. Here's what I want to do then. In light of this truth from God, pray for you. So here's what I'm going to invite us to do in just a moment. I'm going to invite to stand where you are. If you would just say in your standing, I'm walking through some difficulties right now and I would love for some people just to pray for me. You don't have to go into details, certainly not in front of everybody else or even if you don't want to, right around the people around you, just and what all that involves. If you would just by your standing say, I'm walking through some difficulties and you might think, well, I don't know if Mine is as bad as others. Maybe I won't say it like, this is not about comparison. This is just if you would say, I need some extra grace in my life right now. I want us to have an opportunity. Like this is a safe place for this. Like this is what the body of Christ is designed to do. So what's going to happen after you stand? Then I will ask and gather around. Just put a hand on your shoulder and we're just going to pray for you. Make sense? Sound good? Okay. And let's begin right now. Let's just begin to pray out loud. We've done this before all at the same time. Even if you don't have a hand on somebody's shoulder, we're going to pray out loud all at the same time for God's grace, for God's strength, God's wisdom. You say, well, I don't even know what this person's going through. God does. Pray his word for them. Pray for his wisdom, his strength, his grace, his help for them. Just pray what you would want somebody to pray for you if you were walking through something hard right now. So let's just begin right now. So let's start praying together right now, interceding, crying out to God for each other. Oh God, we lift up our brothers and sisters to you right now. We pray that they would feel your presence with them as we are praying over them. They would know that you are near to them, that they are not alone, that there is a body around them who cares for them and that you are with them, that we are a reflection of you, that even with our hands on shoulders right now surrounding them, it's a picture of your love for them. God, we pray that they would know that they are in your hands. We pray Psalm 37, 24 over them. You would uphold them with your righteous right hand. Psalm 31, 15, their times are in your hands. Oh God, all our trust is in you. So we look to you, we lift up our eyes to you, Our help comes from you. Their help comes from you. You are the maker of heaven and earth. So please, oh God, we pray. Please give them all the help they need. God, we pray for your strength in their weakness. We pray for your peace, your shalom, your peace in the middle of turmoil. God, we pray for your joy in the middle of suffering. 
pray that you would produce endurance and character and hope in this. Lord, we pray for a hope. God, we pray for a hope on days when it seems like things are hopeless. God, we pray for faith on days when faith is hard to come by. We pray, oh God, that you would use even this journey through trial to draw these men and women into greater intimacy with you, greater delight in you, greater trust in you, greater experience, deeper experience of your love. Pray for your comfort. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for your direction. We pray for your enablement. You would bring them through. You would do just what you promised to do in Jeremiah 29, that you would bring them through. This lasts for another day or for the rest of their lives. God, we pray that you would bring them through. And Jesus, we bow before you and give you glory. For you have conquered sin and you have defeated suffering. You have defeated death itself. We praise you. We know that in the long term, suffering will not have the last word. In the long term, cancer will not have the last word. In the long term, hurt and heartache will not have the last word. We long for the day when we will see your face and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. Oh, hasten the coming of that day, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And please help us. Please help these brothers and sisters specifically persevere until that day. Please help us all. Not one of us knows what's coming this week. No matter what comes, help us all to find our joy and your never-changing promises and your completely certain hope. We love you, God. We praise you, Jesus. And we are so glad our lives are in your hands. We pray for our brothers and sisters right now. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.
now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. Coming up next is Understanding Israel. Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, and welcome to another program in our series, Understanding Israel. As I mentioned last week, we have looked at four feasts that God gave to the Israelites, and we have seen them fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Today we will begin to study one of the last three feasts that God ordained for the Israelites that have yet to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ but we as Christians look forward to Passover and the feasts of unleavened bread, first fruits and Pentecost are all observed in the spring. The next three feasts are celebrated in autumn. And today we will be studying the first of these feasts. And that is the feast of trumpets. The feast of trumpets is also known as Rosh Hashanah, which literally means head of the year and is the Jewish New Year because it begins the Jewish High Holy Days and 10 Days of Repentance, or Days of Awe. During this 10-day period between Rosh Hashanah and the Day of Atonement, the people are encouraged to contemplate their position before God, repent their sins, and prepare for the Day of Atonement. It is marked by the blowing of the shofar, which is a ram's horn, calling the Jewish people together to repent from their sins. Now let's go to the book of Leviticus in chapter 23, and in verses 23 through 25 we read, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation, You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. According to Lev Lee, on the website Jews for Jesus, he writes, By examining the text in Leviticus chapter 23, we note that the day was to be a memorial with the blowing of trumpets. This is our only clue. The word memorial is indicates that the event to be remembered had taken place prior to this ordinance. To solve the puzzle, we must ask ourselves what extremely significant event involving the blowing of trumpets took place in the national life of Israel. What spiritual event was of such great importance that God commanded the people to remember it every year? I believe the Bible points to one outstanding event connected to the blowing of trumpets, that required memorializing. Mr. Lee goes on to quote Exodus chapter 19, verse 13b, and then verses 16 through 19. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, 
and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Mr. Lee continues, In Exodus chapters 19 and 20, we read the account of God's appearance on Mount Sinai and the initial giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 19 verse 5 depicts God inviting the children of Israel into a covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. In a spectacular revelation, God manifested His presence in the smoke and fire on Mount Sinai as he came to covenant with his people amidst the sound of a trumpet that caused the people to tremble. They promised to do everything that the Lord commanded. This cataclysmic event was to be stamped indelibly upon the memory of the people of Israel. Every year at the Feast of Trumpets, those same sounding trumpet blasts reminded Israel that they were a people under covenant a nation who had accepted the responsibility of being God's people. By doing so, the nation also prepared herself for the Day of Atonement, eight days later, when they would repent and find atonement for all they had done to break this covenant. So how do we Christians view this Feast of Trumpets? Well, there are a couple ways for us to look at this feast. First, we believers in Jesus Christ are under the new covenant for our belief and faith in Him. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, during the Last Supper, Jesus said, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. We remember this covenant every time we participate in communion. The bread and the wine remind us of the death and resurrection of Jesus and our responsibilities of being a new covenant people. Through faith in the shed blood of Jesus, we receive the full and final atonement provided by the new covenant. Another way to view the Feast of Trumpets is the coming of the Day of the Lord. At the website gotquestions.org, they write that the prophets linked the blowing of trumpets to the future day of judgment, and they quote Joel chapter 2, verse 1, where Joel writes, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. In the New Testament, we see that Paul writes about the sounds of a trumpet. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, Paul also writes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
and so we shall always be with the Lord. In Revelation chapters 8 and 9, each of the judgments during the tribulation period are also signaled by a trumpet, such as in chapter 8 verses 6 and 7. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown down to earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Just as the shofar called the Jewish nation to turn their attention to the Lord and ready themselves for the day of atonement, so will the trumpet of God call us to heaven and warn the world of coming judgment. In closing our program for today, I would encourage you to reflect on the blessed hope that we have in Jesus and to look up and listen for the trumpet of God. Our redemption draws near. Until next time, God bless you all and goodbye. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. From whom all blessings flow Praise Him, all creatures here below Praise Him above the heavenly host Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.